This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by BitRefill. BitRefill is the best way to spend your crypto in Latin America. Purchase gift cards or mobile refills from more than 3,500 brands in 186 countries instantly, safely, and privately. Visit bitrefill.com for more information. Guys, before we jump into the episode with Tim Leffel, just wanted to apologize for my audio quality here. I obviously selected the wrong microphone or something, so the audio is a little lower quality than you will normally expect on a My Latin Life episode, but we're going to put out the episode anyway, and you can expect better audio on the next one. Uh, without further ado, here's the episode with Tim Leffel. Welcome back to the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Tim Leffel. Tim is a legendary, award-winning travel writer. He's been around for a long time and author of many books, including A Better Life for Half the Price. Tim, how's it going? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Good talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. You are definitely one of the guests that I always wanted on the podcast. So I'm happily, I'm happy we finally made it happen. Yeah, and I feel good. like I know you because I've and heard we're so not many. that far away from each other. So maybe one of these days in real life. Yeah, I've uh, I actually have a lot of episodes coming out around the same time with guys in that central Mexico area. So it's it'll kind of coincide that they'll be like. One, two guys from Curitro, one, two guys from Guanajuato, one, two guys from San Miguel, all almost sequential in terms of podcasts. So there's enough in that north of Mexico City area that I'm going to have to pay a trip. Yeah, for sure. Um, we've also had other guests that, uh, previous guests on the podcast that you'd be familiar with. We've had uh, Dave's Travel Corner, who's another OG like yourself. Yeah. We've had James Guzman from Borderless. Okay, yeah. Uh, and we've had Dan Andrews, who I've heard on a previous podcast, parents that you like, you like Tropical MBA podcast. So we had Dan from Tropical MBA. Yeah, that's one of them that I have auto-loaded on my uh, podcast listener. I, I like listening to those guys and running a business. It's good uh, to kind of get their mixed perspectives on things, although... They're uh, scaling up much bigger than I ever will. <laughs> Maybe uh, for people who are unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about your illustrious career as a travel writer, because you've been doing it 10 plus years, 15 plus years. Yeah, it gets harder to do a condensed version the longer it goes on. But um, in short, I used to work in the music business when I got out of college. That's what I studied, music and business, and I worked for a record company when they called them that, um, in Nashville, Tennessee and New York city. And I met my now wife in New York and we, uh, eventually chucked all that and went traveling around the world and circled the globe three times. And I decided I liked that life a lot better than working in an office and eventually, um, turned a part-time travel writing career into a full-time one. And I've been full-time since 2006, basically, you know, in the old days, you could freelance for magazines and newspapers, and that was about it. And then when the internet came along, it just allowed everybody to chart their own path and avoid the gatekeepers and all that. So I started launching websites and 
The first one was my Cheapest Destinations blog, which is still running. It's been up since 2003, so I think that's maybe the longest-running single-person travel blog out there. And I've always done all the content for that one. But then I launched some other sites to kind of fill a niche here and there um, to fill a hole in the market. And uh, so basically I run five of them and one's for travel writers. So it's kind of inside baseball, but the other four are consumer travel sites. And then, like you mentioned, I have some books out and um, I still do some freelancing here and there. I've written for Outside and CNN and some other big publications, but um I prefer running my own show and saying whatever I want when I have the choice. <laughs> and of course the book, a better life for half the price. Yeah. So that's my living abroad book. It's in its second edition. And, um, yeah, I'm just trying to get the point across in that, that it's not such a scary thing to do. There are lots of people that have done it before, but you have to have the right you know, framework, the right uh, mental state and the right desires in life to, to do that. So first examine, you know, what, where you're actually coming from and where you want to go and what's the ideal place. And then I try to present some options for, I think, 19 countries where you can easily live for half what you're spending in the U.S. or U.K. or Canada. Tell me more about that. Well, I think it's just the simple currency arbitrage differences, you know, what makes up a lot of it. Uh, these countries have a GDP, you know, per capita, that's half of what the U S is or less. And so basically you're earning in your home currency or using your retirement funds or whatever. And then you're spending in a country where costs are just far less. And that doesn't mean everything is cheaper, as you know, living in Mexico, like anything that's imported is probably going to cost you more than it did at home. But, uh, you know, a lot of these countries, they grow a lot, they produce a lot. And so you kind of get the advantage of lower food prices and lower utility bills and, you know, cheaper rent and taxis are less. Anything that requires labor is less. So getting your house cleaned, taking a cab across town getting your shoes repaired, any of that kind of stuff. So um, that's true in places in Latin America. There are places in Asia. There are places in Europe even. So the idea is to look around and see where you can make your money go further. Either maybe you just want to lower your expenses, like you're, you're overwhelmed by how much you're spending every month on just getting by and you want to have a better life for half the price. That's the title. Or a lot of people are looking to start a business and they want to extend their runway. As they say, you know, if you go to live in Chiang Mai for a year, it's a lot easier to launch an online business from there and live cheaply than it is to try to do it from New York city or San Francisco. How many countries have you been to at this point? Oh, wow. I, you know, I have this um, blog post called how many countries have you been to? I don't care because my point is um, I, I don't want to be a country counter just for the sake of, you know, ticking off boxes. And I've been to Peru five or six times. I've been to uh, Colombia many times. I've been to Bulgaria five or six times. And so I tend to go back to places and try to explore them more in depth. But I always say, I think it's close to my age and I'm, nearing 60. So I've been to a lot. I've been to all of them in the, both of my books, the world's cheapest destinations and, um, better life for half the price, except for Georgia, the country of Georgia. 
Mm-hmm. So that's one I still need to get to. And I know that you're not uh, exclusively a Latin America guy, right? You've done Eastern Europe, um, you've done Asia, things like that, but you've found yourself basing up in Mexico and you split your time between Tampa, Florida and Guanajuato, Mexico. How did you make that decision to choose Mexico above all of these illustrious cheap destinations or other more far-flung regions that might be less covered for a travel writer? Well, first of all, I really do like the food and the culture. And if you're going to learn another language, Spanish is certainly the most useful one in this part of the world. So all of those played a factor. I really like the city I'm in a lot. It's called Guanajuato. It's a UNESCO World Heritage City, a historic city, but it's not that big. It's only about a quarter million and you can walk everywhere. Like there's more pedestrian streets than ones with cars on them by far. It's, it looks very much like a, a city in Spain that you would, you know, see when you go to Europe and the weather's really nice. And so all those things played a factor, but a lot of it was just convenience to be honest. Like I spent a year, in, I mean, not a year, a month um, living in Thailand last year. And it was a royal pain in the rear trying to run my business from there. Um, mm. Not for the online asynchronous stuff. That doesn't matter so much. But if you need to make a phone call, good God, like you got to get up at four in the morning or you know, you, you come back, you want to go out, you come back and you've had a few drinks and then you've got some message you have to answer. It's a pain. In the, <laughs> it's a royal pain. And so, you know, being like exactly opposite of um, this hemisphere is is really tough. And then also... I've, my mother's still alive. My wife's mother's still alive. And so we go back and see family. My, my daughter's now living on her own in the U S and I, I do business there. You know, I go to conferences, I have meetings with people. And, um, so I think the further away you get, the harder it gets. And I really like Argentina. I could live there in a second, but, um, that's a long overnight flight to get back from there. And so um, all of that played a factor. And at the time when I first moved down here, my father was still alive as well, but he was, you know, ailing and um, I needed to go back and see him on a regular basis. So, you know, those things are important to keep in mind, or sometimes you meet retirees that want to be not too far away because they've got grandkids and they want to get back to see them or they got health issues and they want to, you know, make use of their Medicaid or whatever, Medicare. So mm-hmm. they, they need to fly back sometimes to, um, you know, have those kind of things done. Although healthcare is better everywhere else in the world, I feel like, and, and less expensive. But if you're, if you're on Medicare, then you are getting socialized medicine. So it can make sense to go back for a while. Yeah. Let me ask you about how you think about medicine and, and healthcare. Cause uh, you're basically where I'm going to be in uh, a couple decades time, right? Where I'm going to have to figure out how to handle uh, this kind of thing where maybe there's a bit of a pension coming from North America and maybe some sort of health, free health care, who knows. Um, but then, as you said, healthcare is much better in Latin America. How do you deal with it? Like, do you pay out of pocket? You probably have some sort of insurance plan in Mexico. And then do you go back to the States for more complicated procedures or how do you kind of do it? I'll um, start with the last thing. The only, only medical care I've gone back to the U S for since I came to Mexico is for um, COVID vaccines, (laughs) because uh, if you went to the U S you could get whatever you wanted, but if you got it in Mexico, it was just kind of a roll of the dice. Like you might get a, 
Russian one, you might get a Chinese one. Like there was not much uh, control there. So we got our uh, shots back in the U.S. But And those were free, by the way, so it wasn't any cost to it. And we were already going back for other reasons. But um, everything else I just pay out of pocket. Uh, as you know, it's quite inexpensive to get medical care in Mexico, whether you're going to the dentist or going to a doctor or getting uh, lab tests done. Any of that stuff is a fraction of what you would pay in the U.S. and often better quality, too. I mean, you get better service with the doctor. They're not in a hurry. They're, they'll give you their cell phone number half the time. Mm-hmm. Um, my dentist is super thorough. I've had some work done here for literally like a fourth of what it would have cost in the U.S., and, and I think the quality was much better as well. But we do have a catastrophic uh, insurance plan. It's like an expat insurance plan. And um, it's not all that cheap, but the reason it's not all that cheap is it covers us in the U.S. as well. Like you can just get by with travel insurance if you're only going back to the U.S. for a week or two. But if you're going longer than that, usually 14 days is kind of the cutoff for a lot of travel insurance for the U.S. just because the U.S. is so darn expensive for healthcare. So Basically, we have this policy that we're paying more for because it covers this when we're in the U.S. Because sometimes we're there for like a month at a time, staying at my uh, mother-in-law's place in Tampa Bay. And so, you know, you don't want to get in a car wreck in the U.S. and not have health insurance. (laughs) So I feel like it's important for us to be covered. Mm. So what's your ultimate recommendation for expats living in Mexico or Latin America? Um, They get... And, and let's say they're they're down to spend less than two weeks per trip in in the USA or Canada. I would just pay out of pocket and then also maybe have some kind of Mexican catastrophic care plan, which will cost very little. Um, and that's just in case you get diagnosed with cancer or you get hit by a bus or something, you know, like just routine things are not going to cost you that much. Even like my wife had to go get a routine colonoscopy done and, I think it was like a fifth of what it would have been in the U.S., you know, like those kind of things even. You just can pay out of pocket or use a credit card, you know, it's not a big deal. But if something major happens, then, you know, in theory, if you have residency in Mexico, you could go to the public hospital and it's covered. But, you know, do you really want to go to the public hospital is the question. Like you probably want to pay to go to a private one if you're able. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And so for the retirees, like how does it work? What's the common situation that you're seeing? Because I hear lots of situations where when I talk to at least Canadian retirees, they say, yeah, I'll chill in Mexico until I'm like really old. And then I got to go back to Canada when I can get the free care when I'm 85 and I need like lots of care. And I look at that and I'm like, but the the free care in Canada sucks. Like, wouldn't you still be better off just paying out of pocket when you're, or, or whatever, you know, just, just doing it locally in Mexico. I just don't even see why they want to go back when they're at a really advanced age. Yeah, I agree because, you know, Canada's healthcare system is great in the sense that it's paid for out of your taxes, but you do have a wait for a lot of things, you know, you have to wait for procedures and mm-hmm. getting in to see your doctors, not all that quick. And, yeah, I was. I mean, I've thought about this. Like, if I get to a point where I need like home health care, I would much rather have that in Mexico. You could have somebody full time for 
you know, not much money. (laughs) So I think that would be a far superior experience. You could still stay home. You know, you don't have to, you know, go to some nursing home or whatever. And, um, I don't know, you have better weather. (laughs) Like I would just much rather be here. So yeah, I don't really get that thinking, but I do have some older retired friends that will just hop on a plane and go back. Like I just had this friend who, um, had a knee injury and she had to go get knee surgery. So she flew to San Antonio or somewhere in Texas on a direct flight. Um, and you know, it was like on Viva Airbus, So it was like $85 or something. She just flew back, got the knee surgery done. And then, you know, a couple of days later came back to Mexico. And so I think that's probably the ideal way to do it. Just, uh, make use of it when you really need it on a one-off basis. And, there is a hospital in Guadalajara that will, that is somehow affiliated with the U S Medicare system where, so I've heard that people that live around Lake Chapala can just go up to Guadalajara and go to a certain hospital and get work done. But I don't know what the details are. Mm. Yeah. But Canada's a bit weird because I also know that there's a lot of snowbirds from Canada and Mexico and other Latin American countries that only come down for five months or so. And then they go back up because there's something that you can lose your healthcare coverage if you're away more than that, more than six months. Yeah, I don't think you actually would lose it, but they think that anyway. Um, it it yeah. depends on what province you're in. I think it's not a national thing; it's a provincial rule. I see. And yeah, just to kind of double down on this, because it is something I'm curious about, and and you are kind of one of the best people to talk about this. So do you think that it's good to be like a young retiree in Mexico, you know what I mean? Like 50s up to maybe 75 and then go back home for advanced stuff when you're when you've kind of hit that 75 mark? Or do you think you're basically just good in Mexico, good in Latin America for life? Yeah, I think it's the latter. If you have the money, unless you're really, you know, scraping by which hopefully you're not as a retiree, you know, like you've got social security, which can easily cover your living expenses, just that. Um, or you've got, you know, some kind of pension or IRA or 401k or whatever. And, and again, it stretches a long way in the healthcare system here. So even if you had full-time healthcare every month, you'd still spend less on than you would spend just on rent in the U S. So I think you're better off just, yeah, sticking to here. And, and we're talking about Mexico, but Places like Panama and Costa Rica, they have, you know, really gleaming world-class hospitals. So um, even Ecuador. So it's not like you're slumming it if you're going to these places, you know. They've all got Western-trained doctors and the best equipment and everything. It's just that costs are lower because the what the locals can afford is lower. And you don't have this for-profit healthcare system where everybody's trying to get their cut and there's five different middlemen. <laughs> This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally see... As long as you speak a decent level of Spanish, I don't see why you would need to go back to the U.S. for almost anything. Like maybe they might have a couple really specialized 
cancer machines or something like that but yeah if you have something really oddball you know some rare condition then it would make sense but like at Panama, one of those hospitals is affiliated with Johns Hopkins. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they got doctors going back and forth. So unless you've got some rare blood disease or something, you're probably okay where you are. That's good. That's good. And what are some of the other concerns that uh, hopeful expats and retirees have when they come to Mexico? Because I'm sure you spend quite a lot of time um you know, uh, helping them out with these concerns. Well, I think people that haven't spent much time abroad tend to worry about the wrong things. You know, they worry about safety, even though the U S is one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Um, they worry about getting ripped off all the time, even though, you know, unless you're in Cancun, you're probably not going to get ripped off by Mexicans on a regular basis. You're not going to get cheated. Um, they worry about the language, uh, you know, which is valid. But I mean, these days with when my wife goes to the doctor, she speaks pretty good Spanish. But when she goes to a doctor or specialist about something, she just like, you know, works it all out with Google Translate ahead of time, what she needs to say. And then on the spot, you can do that if you, you know, are having a communication problem. Like now the technology is to the point where, you know, you can communicate with each other, even if you don't even if you're in Bulgaria, you don't speak a word of Bulgarian, but in Spanish, it's normally a hurdle that's easy to get past. I think, I mean, you do want to learn the language just so you know what's going around you and you can read the signs and you can at least communicate with shopkeepers and restaurants and whatever, but you don't have to be to the point where, you know, advanced medical terms to get by. Um, and then, you know, another legitimate concern is finding housing. Like it, it just doesn't work the way it does in a Western country where you can just pull stuff up on the internet and, and arrange five appointments and then go pick an apartment. You know, it's, we won't even get into house centers international, but <laughs> it, uh, that's basically entertainment TV. It's not reality. Um, you do have to have feet on the ground. You do have to talk to people. You might have to enlist a Spanish speaking helper to find an apartment, but you know, just be patient give it time and you'll find a place that you like and it'll be a good deal. It's just, uh, take some, take some patience. Okay. So safety, not a big concern. Scams, not a big concern. Spanish, you can get by. House hunting is definitely an interesting one because that does, involve a certain level of effort. Um, so if the first three there aren't as genuine of concerns as people make them out to be, what, what, pe- what should be on people's radar? Um, just one other one real quick. I, I just thought of that. I get questions on a lot, which is the banking situation. And that one also is not really concerned because I've never had a Mexican bank. I just pull stuff out of my U S bank and there are debit cards you can get that won't charge you a fee and there's others you can get that are even better that will reimburse the local charges like ones through credit unions or Schwab or Fidelity or some of the other brokerages. So yeah, that's not really an issue either. And, um, you can use your U S credit cards for most things and, um, you can send money with wise and PayPal and all those things. So yeah, banking's not really an issue either. Um, But yeah, I mean, just, I think the cultural thing is what people have the most difficulty with, especially if they haven't traveled a lot in Latin America already, just things move much more slowly. Um, 
that people are not in a hurry. They're not workaholics. You know, if they've got a family thing at two o'clock and you're wanting them to come by your house to do some work at four, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and they're not going to come by on Sunday, even if they'll tell you they are. So I just think it's like important to, you know, slow down and, and adapt and not get all worked up about it. I mean, if the contractor says they're coming by at 10 and they don't show up till two, it's not worth getting angry about because that's pretty normal. So, mm -hmm. um, I think that's the hardest thing that type A personalities especially have a hard time getting used to is just the sense of time is very different. There's not much urgency and, um, things get done eventually, but maybe not on your schedule. Yeah, I had one this past week for a chiropractor and he said, yeah, yeah, come, we'll have you come back on Monday and uh, we'll see you on Monday. And I'm like, cool. And then I contact them on, I leave the office, I contact them on WhatsApp and I'm like, hey, let's get it set up for Monday. And they're like, oh, there's no appointments on Monday. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that thing. You see this in some Asian cultures too, where they hate to say no and they, they don't want to disappoint you. So they'll tell you what you want to hear, even if it's not true. <laughs> yeah. Um, back to banking. I, I was actually curious how you do it because you've been in Mexico for so long. I'm actually surprised that you're able to uh, continue not having a Mexican bank account and, and basically just using the, you know, uh, ATM reimbursement debit cards or tell me a little bit more about your exact strategy. Well, I just haven't run into an issue where it has really mattered. Like even when I bought real estate, you know, the money just got wired to their account from the U S and it was no big deal. And, um, you know, I have, I don't know, I do transactions here all the time and I've never had to really, um, there's been no need to have a Mexican bank really. And, you know, I see the lines outside of them, especially twice a month when it's payday. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. Like you that. Um, the one problem I've run into is there's some situations where you try to use a U.S. credit card and it gets rejected. Like if you're just if you're trying to buy a bus ticket or buy something from Mercado Libre, which is like a sort of eBay site. Sometimes they, they won't, won't accept a foreign credit card and they'll only accept a Mexican one. But even in those cases, you can use PayPal or you can just go pay the bill at OXO, which is kind of a weird thing to adjust to. But again, there's a, there's a counterpart in Asia with 7-Eleven. Like you can pretty much do everything from an OXO, including sending money to Mexican people. They just have to give you their, um, 16 digit debit card number, which kind of blows my mind. That's, that's how it works. But you basically go into OXO and give, give that 60 digit number to the person at the counter, the same person you buy beer from, and mm -hmm. they'll input the info. And then magically that money just shows up in that person's account after you hand the clerk some cash. So yeah, it's pretty easy to do things in, in other ways here. And, um, probably part of that is because there's so much money flowing back and forth between the U S and Mexico every day, like people sending remittances and sending money to their relatives and whatever. So, um, yeah, it's pretty easy to, to send money back and forth. And then just there's, there's, um, ATM machines everywhere, even in tiny little towns now. Yeah. That's why there's always a huge line at the OXO. One guy's paying his tell-sell bill. One guy's sending money. <laughs> yeah. You can pay your bills there too. So it is a problem if you are just trying to buy a soda and you're behind like 10 people trying to do financial transactions. Yeah. Seriously. Those, uh, 
OXO workers. Shout out to them because <laughs> they have to know so many things. I think that's why there's a help wanted sign on every single one of them. <laughs> um, I, I do want to keep doubling down on this bank thing just to, I, I honestly can't believe, are, are you purposely choosing not to get a Mexican bank account or you just literally don't see the need? Yeah, I literally don't see the need. Like my business is based in the U.S. And um, even I actually ran a tour company here for six years, a local walking tour company. I, I since sold it to my head guide earlier this year. Um, but even for that, like, um, I don't know. I just, I, I got, the, I went and got the tax ID number because I had to for Airbnb because we ran an Airbnb experience. But mm -hmm. even with that, like they didn't need a Mexican bank account and number or anything. So the Airbnb paid you to your U.S. bank? Yes, and it paid the Mexican taxes too, like that that were required, whatever that is. Like if you're uh -huh. renting a, if you rent your Airbnb apartment, I think that's how it works too. They just they just pay Mexico themselves. Yeah, they do like a withholding. Yeah. And did you use a Mexican accountant to square it out at the end? No, I just had to go to the office and sit around for a couple of hours and do a bunch of paperwork, but it wasn't, no, in the end, it was pretty painless what actually had to happen. I mean, I am a permanent resident here, so I guess that makes it easier, um, you know, gets rid of some complications. But yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of, a lot of the expats I know don't have a Mexican bank. And if they do, it's just because they think they might need it to pay um a housekeeper or something i don't know like i don't mm -hmm. i don't see a lot of reasons for it if they so have a business that's a different story like if you own a coffee shop or a restaurant or something then you need one but if you run a remote business i don't think it's necessary so do you find that you're taking out a lot of money from the atm per month because i think i heard that you own your home in, in guanajuato but even still you must be taking out over 20,000 pesos per month from the ATM to cover just like all your expenses, buy groceries, this and that. Yeah, maybe. But at the big grocery stores, you can use a card. So a lot of times I'll just put that on a debit card or credit card and then pay it off. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I guess I take it out somewhere in that area each month, but you know, you could take like seven or 8,000 at a time out at the ATM. And then my wife mm -hmm. takes out money too. So between us it's it's pretty easy the only time it creates a problem is like we just had some work done on our house where we built a staircase up to the roof and so we were literally going every day or two to the atm and pulling out a bunch of cash so that's and then you hand it to the guy and you feel like you're doing a drug deal because it's this big stack you know right. um but yeah that's the only time where it's really an issue and, and again, like it's back to that patience and understanding thing. They're not expecting to get all their money up front anyway. So, you know, you have to pay them part of it up front and then you pay the rest over the weeks as they're doing the work. And so, yeah, it wasn't really an issue. And, um, I used to pay rent and, but even then I think that was $800 a month when we were paying rent. And so, you know, you just kind of plan ahead and take out the cash. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's just regular, monthly living expenses, which are not that much. And my utility bills are next to nothing because this is a place where the weather's pretty spring-like all year. So you don't really use heat or air conditioning. So mm -hmm. our utility bills are like literally 10 or 15 bucks a month for water and for electricity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so I guess you've been basically, sorry if this is too in-depth, but you've basically been pulling out $1,000 a month from the ATM for like 15 years. Yeah, pretty much so. And I do have one of those cards with no fees. It's from Fidelity. I just have a cash account there. Uh-huh. Um, I have a brokerage there, but it's just basically a money market account and you you know transfer money from wherever you want. And then they reimburse the local ATM fees. I still go to the cheapest one, you know, the one that charges the lowest fee because I'm afraid that if I don't, it's going to come back to bite me someday. But yeah, I think the the fee is 18 pesos or something like that, about a dollar. And so Fidelity just reimburses that every time and then they don't charge a fee. Got it. And so you do it all just on the same card, like just with Fidelity, or do you kind of spread it out between a couple of different ones? Uh, I mostly do it through that one though. I have a few backups because I have actually written about this, that it's very important to have backups because you never know if you're going to, lose your card or it gets eaten or it's expired and you need a new one. So I have, um, God, I got three debit backups, probably one business account, one checking account and PayPal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. So Fidelity has been good to you for a decade and they haven't, have have you ever got some kind of warning or you ever call them up and try to do some stuff and they're kind of like, never, they've been great. And then my wife has one from, Capital One, it's called the Capital One 360 card, and they don't reimburse the local fee. But again, she's paying a dollar each time, but they don't they don't charge one themselves. So all it's all it's costing her to get her money out is a dollar each time. Right. So they don't charge her on the U.S. side. She just pays the Mexico side one. Exactly. Okay. And I, I think I heard in another interview that you're 100 percent. ATM gang, you don't bring US cash down when you like when you go to Tampa or whatever, do you try to like, you know, get like just under 10K and then like bring like five five K, nine K back to Mexico and and exchange that or or it's not even worth it with the exchange rate? No, I don't I don't even bother with that because you get a better rate at the ATM than you do at the physical um, cash exchange places and I don't have any need for dollars here. Like if I lived in Playa del Carmen, it would be a different story. You can play, you know, you can pay with a lot of, pay for a lot of things with dollars and tourist I recommend areas. That. But no, I just meant to like exchange it just to like not put so much, um, not put so much through the ATM, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, so far, if it, you know, if it ever becomes a problem, then I might adjust. But the only time I've brought tons of cash with me is when I went to Argentina, which I would strongly advise right. because you get a different rate, <laughs> a much better rate, like double. Okay, so you have it here. <laughs> Sorry if I had to triple down on this too much. Hopefully people find this logistic stuff interesting. No, it's no problem. I mean, it is interesting. And I don't know if that's the best strategy for every country. Um, and then you have oddball ones in the mix like Ecuador and Panama where they actually use U.S. dollars. So right. then, you know, it's a different different uh, calculation. Mm-hmm. Do you ever use Western Union to like send it money to other people or even to yourself to like go pick it up or no Western Union? I used to. I used to use that in MoneyGram, but it was for a different reason. We had a um, we used to have a little beach house in um, on the Gulf Coast near Merida. And it was just like a vacation home before I ever moved here. And um, we had a a housekeeper who took care of the place and cleaned up and everything. So we used to use 
that to send money to her so she could just go in and pick it up. But I never used it to send money to myself. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I know I wanted to ask you about kids. So, and, and raising kids in Mexico, raising expat kids in Mexico, school, this kind of thing. Uh, can we get into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, cause this is something that is part of the, uh, the rite of passage of the, I guess the, the flow or the transition from digital nomad to expat right, is you start coming down as maybe a single guy for the people listening to this, you meet a nice Latina and you want to start living in Mexico. And then it comes up a whole range of new questions about uh, having babies in Latin America, having babies in Mexico, um, you know, schools in Mexico, vaccines in Mexico, all these different things, right? And so if I recall your situation correctly, uh, you you had a daughter that was already in middle school, something like that. And then you moved to Mexico. You had your kid in the U S and then you moved to Mexico. Yeah. And I think that's kind of common too. Like a lot of people get the itch to move abroad, but they've got a kid in school and they're like, Oh, I'm going to have to wait till they're 18. And it's like, mm. no, you don't have to do that. Like there are schools everywhere. And you know, some people homeschool too, if you have, if you have the personality for it, but Neither of us really did. But um, so my daughter was 10 when we moved the first time. So she was still in elementary school. And I will say at the top, it's way easier when they're younger than it is when they get into high school. Because honestly, you know, when you're in elementary school, it's, you know, what you're learning is not going to change your life. It's not like you're on a career track or anything. So I don't think it really matters where in the world you go to school when you're that age. And she was at a Waldorf school, which is kind of like um, crunchy granola. You know, they spend a lot of time sure. like playing and doing woodworking and, you know, putting the Waldorf on. Waldorf school uh, was in the States or in Mexico? No, in Mexico. Yeah, okay. they're all over. And there's one here. There's also a Montessori school here. Um, it was in Spanish, though, which was, you know, there we're not in the big city. Like if you were in Mexico City, you would have lots of lots more choices. But so she went to that school and, you know, learned Spanish really quickly because that's what all her friends spoke. There was only one other foreigner in her class. And, um, you know, it went fine. It wasn't very academically rigorous, but that was okay. Like I'm saying, I don't think it matters that much. Um, and then we moved, went back to the States for a bit and then we came back to Mexico and then she was in middle school and she did that for two years. And, um, there we started seeing more cracks in the system academically. Like it was a private school, but, um, and probably the best one here, but still, um, it just, again, wasn't very academically rigorous. And, and it was kind of like Harry Potter with the school of dark arts teacher. I think she had five math teachers in in the two year period she was here, like they just kept rotating through and, um, and just, they would spend time on silly stuff and they would have a, they would have a holiday like every week or two, it seemed like, you know, like there's so many Mexican holidays and then they would just make up ones of their own, it seemed like. But anyway, like our main goal was for her to have the cultural experience and to get fluent in Spanish and, you know, to bond with some people her age and, and all of that was accomplished. But then we went back to the U.S. for her last three years, for the last three years of high school. And that was partly her decision. She really wanted to go to a school that looked like the ones on the Disney channel, you know, with 
cafeteria and lockers and and all that kind of stuff and um the drama club which she was in and um the school she went to in mexico was quite small and you know they had i think 12 18 people in their class something like that and that was the whole class so she wanted to go back and so we didn't try to push it and we went back to the states for those three years and then when she went off to college we said adios and returned to mexico and that was 2018 and we've been here permanently ever since hey guys quick interruption to tell you about bit refill bit refill is the best way to convert your crypto into gift card balances these are gift cards that you can spend at hotels.com airbnb nike and many more you may remember joel valenzuela previous podcast guest he's been living on crypto exclusively since 2015 and he's a big consumer of bit refill and so i asked joel i said what do you like most about bit refill he said that he likes the instant delivery the precise amount so that you don't have to juggle a lot of gift cards and he loves the global selection. Nobody else has this much selection of gift cards, over 10,000 gift card options across hundreds of countries. Go to bitrefill.com to sign up and you can also use the code MyLatinLife for 10% back off your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point that you mentioned like the empty nesters have no problem moving to latin america the younger guys have no problem moving to latin america it's people with the school-aged children that feel stuck and we definitely don't want anyone to feel stuck in a place where they're not happy so could we walk through a little bit because you, you this is basically what you did right your daughter was how old when you guys moved 10 12 14 she was 10 yeah and she was not happy about all of this, <laughs> as you can imagine. Like she had grown up in Nashville, Tennessee, and lived there her whole life. And then we basically told her, um, "We're selling our house, we're moving, and we're not coming back here." And uh, that's a tough thing for a kid that age. Although it's easier at that age than it would be if they were a teenager, you know, because then they've got really embedded friendships um, and clubs and sports and all that stuff. So again, it's easier when they're younger. Um, but yeah, I mean. We chose this city because we love the city, but if we had, if the schools had been the biggest priority, we could have moved to San Miguel de Allende uh, an hour and a half down the road. And there's probably three or four schools in English, you know, if, if you want that for your child. Um, and some of them are, you know, pretty academically uh, rigorous. You could go to Mexico City or Guadalajara and then you could put them in an international baccalaureate school, which is, I you know, be, up to uh, the you know, high standards of international education if you wanted to. But I thought it was more important for her to learn Spanish and, you know, learn the culture and all of that than it was for her to, you know, be able to pass the standardized math tests. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's a matter of your priorities. But my point is all the options are out there. You can go to a Waldorf school. You can go to a Montessori school. You can go to a baccalaureate school. You could put them in the public education system if you wanted um and we wouldn't have minded that except the class sizes are really big like at least where we are you can have 35 40 kids in a classroom and i think that's just mayhem you know and it's hard to really learn much in my opinion so we we avoided that but you know if you if you were in a city where the class sizes weren't so huge then that could be an option as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a, in a previous podcast, you said something funny uh, that I really liked. It was like, 
it was like, look, like the kid's school doesn't even matter from like until they get to high school, because up until arguably middle school, high school, it's it's basically just like babysitting. Right. And it's like, here's red, here's blue. Like it's <laughs> it's not a big deal. And but you said it in an interesting way. You said, I guess the gap between a good and a bad school starts expanding as the kid gets older. So like maybe from like zero to eight, like if it was like a chart with two lines, the two lines are like basically the same until you're like maybe eight or 10 years old. And then at that point, the two lines start diverging a little bit. And once you get into high school, yeah, there's obviously some differences in terms of like mathematical ability and so forth. But it's pretty, I, th I thought that was a cool way of explaining it. Yeah. And you know, I was just thinking about this now. You could probably ask anyone this. Think back on your elementary school days. Like, what did you really learn that you, you know, can remember at this point? And, I mean, you learn the basics. You learn how to do basic math. You learn to read. You learn to draw, you know, and you you play sports, you know, and whatever. But, I mean, none of that fundamentally affects what you do for a career or anything, you know, it's just like, it's more social than anything, you know, you're learning to learning to learn basically. And so I think you could do that in any kind of setting and culture. Yeah. Makes sense. And, um, just to keep going with this. So the, well, what happened to your daughter now? Cause now she's like a, she's a, a young adult, right? Yeah, so she went off to college, she finished, and now she's um she worked for Disney for a year actually cuz she went to college in Orlando and then that's what she did when she finished working in the park system. But now she's uh living in Atlanta working for an events company and still trying to get her dream job, but she's young and hasn't gotten there yet, but um anyway, she's off on her it's own. Cool. And, we won't uh, put her feet to the fire where she's at now, but I was just curious so she went to the US for college. Yeah, she did. And she wanted to. And, um, you know, some kids are affected differently. Like some kids, it really opens up their eyes to the possibilities of the world. And maybe they want to study abroad and maybe they want to work abroad. But she's not in that camp. <laughs> she wanted to live in the U.S. and have everything that the U.S. provides for you culturally and convenience wise and all that. And so, you know, we're not going to try to argue with her and and convince her there's a better way if, if mm -hmm. she wants to find it someday she will but um but yeah you know it's she's she's kind of blase about travel which is kind of funny we've taken her you know when she was young we took her to costa rica and guatemala and canada and southeast asia and all these places and um some kids that totally you know changes their life and other kids is like yeah i'm gonna go watch the movie <laughs> that's uh, that's where she is I mean, yeah, maybe she'll come back around and appreciate it more. But a couple, a couple questions about this. So, what was it like applying to the U.S. schools? I, I assume she had to do the SAT. Yeah, she did all that, and part of all that was what went into the calculation about going back and doing the last three years in the U.S. as well. That we thought it would be a whole lot easier for her to get a U.S. diploma, pass all those. So she went back and, and did what? She stayed with the mother-in-law or some cousins? No, no. We all moved back together. So we spent oh. three years living together in Tampa. Oh, and while she did her, her yeah, high school. Yeah, while she like went to grades, high school. Grades 10 so, to 12. Okay. Yeah, 10, 11, and 12. And we lived in downtown Tampa. And we went to 
um, a really good school that's in that area. So we didn't have to move out to the burbs um, <laughs> like a lot of parents do for their school situation. Uh, and then, um, yeah, we, we hightailed it out of there because we were paying 2200 a month, I think, for our rent for this three-bedroom apartment, which was okay. But I'm sure now it's like three grand at least because that was whatever, 2018 is when we left. And, mm. you know, rents have gone up everywhere since then. And my my big comparison always is I tell people, you know, the three of us spent less in Mexico on everything than we spent just on rent in Tampa. And that doesn't count utilities, car payment, you know, insurance, all that other stuff. Interesting. So you went back for three years. You had to buy a car. Yeah, well, we leased one for three years because we had our in we had our end date in mind. <laughs> we uh, rented a Prius for three years to keep our, uh, I mean, leased it, you know, to keep our uh, gas prices low, and uh, and then handed it back at the end and got on a plane. Mm. You could have practically just sent her to a boarding school. Yeah, we actually talked about that for a, for a hot minute, but uh, she was not up for that idea. And what's funny is like, I'm, I mean, I'm sure she's a, a, a overachiever and everything, but it's funny. It's, it is in a lot of ways, like a sacrifice frame where maybe she felt like she had a lot of pressure on her. And if the SAT score wasn't high enough, it'd be like, we came back to America for this. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah. We, we do give her shit sometimes, but in a joking way, it's like, uh, you know, um, the sacrifices we made for you. But then her comeback is, well, I sacrificed to go to Mexico and I, I didn't want to do that. And so it's yeah. all fair, I guess. Yeah, but, a, um, life is a balance. Did she become a Mexican citizen? Well, she became a, a temporary resident because we had temporary residency when we were all here together. Uh, but no, not a citizen, not a permanent resident, although I guess she could have. But if she were going to come here and work, that would be a different story. But um, so far that's not in the cards, but I, I just want to emphasize that, like I was talking about the wrenching lifestyle change it was for her to leave all her friends in the city she knew and everything, but like mm -hmm. two weeks later, it was nothing, you know? And I think that's, <laughs> a, that's a fear that a lot of parents have, like, oh, this is going to be so hard on my kids. It's not hard. Like kids adapt really quickly. And yeah, she had to struggle for a little bit learning the language, but when you're immersed in it in school every day and all your friends are speaking it you learn super fast. Like it's a lot easier than trying to learn in a classroom. And did she get like full Mexican accent? I'm just trying to think she only spent maybe four or five years in Mexico. I mean, uh, but yeah, pretty, she, pretty pivotal years. Is she full like no mames or. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure she's losing some of it now, but she, um, she sounded like a Mexican when she talked on the phone for sure. And, had a lot of local slang and everything. So <laughs> it was good. No, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one with the high school. Definitely a lot of ways you can play that um, from within Mexico. Yeah. And if that is really important to you to live here during your high school years or other Latin American countries, like I think you just need to go to a big city is the bottom line. Like if you want a really good high school education, you're going to have to spend the big bucks and send them to an international school. And that would be another cultural experience, but a very weird one because you'll be with politicians, kids and like the captains yeah. of industries, kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, yeah, I guess the Gringos kids fit, fits in that mix. Um, and, what, and what about homeschool? Like, you probably know people all up and down the spectrum from, like, hippies to, like, everything, right? Is, do you find that homeschooling is a pretty big thing in, in Mexico or where you're at? Yeah, it is because that totally opens up your options for location. Then you can be anywhere. And I think you can get a really good education through homeschooling these days because there's so many resources out there and it's a very well-worn path. You know, you can get everything you need on the internet with videos and books and guides and, you know, video lessons and everything. Um, and then if you, if you do it right, you know, you can still set up all the social activities so they have a real life, you know. Um, but the problem is I think you got to be a really patient parent and, and you know, not have any uh, battleground issues with your kids, you know, like my wife and my daughter were at each other's throats a lot, you know, like arguing about a lot of, a lot of things on a regular basis. So it just would not have worked in the personality dynamic, but you know, other parents have a much easier laid back dynamic with their kids and, um, they're able to pull it off really well. So, you know, I think think if you're like, also, if you're based up somewhere, you could get a couple parents together, pay for a teacher and you know, how much is a teacher? You know what I mean? A private teacher, you probably get. Yeah, for for sure. Maybe 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. You you know, a thousand bucks a month. I don't know. (laughs) You get two teachers, 2000 bucks a month, split that between a couple parents. Not a big deal. Yeah, and actually you could pay them more than they're making at the private school probably, you know, because they're working for Mexican wages. So you could probably get the best teachers in town if you had a group of you together. <laughs> yeah, makes me want to start a school. Um, cool. Uh, I'm trying to think if I have any more questions about parenting. Probably get you, get you offline, get your WhatsApp, and uh, uh, maybe uh, some of these questions will come in the future. But uh, Yeah, so- just um- – Real quick, like we were, we were talking about that Tropical MBA podcast and they had a, a couple episodes on there about alternative education options for parents. And there's some really interesting things going on here and there in certain communities where they have banded together, like you were talking about. There's a really good one in Osara, Costa Rica, which is kind of a surf town. Mm-hmm. And parents are basically doing what you suggested. They've, they've hired um, some local teachers. They've also tapped different parents that have different expertise. Like one of them was an oceanographer and is like teaching the science class, you know? Um, and then they do all these crazy great nature excursions together, you know? So you could have a better education abroad than you can have in the U S if you, if you do it right. And the educational yeah. possibilities as far as hands-on stuff could be a lot better. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. I definitely, definitely, definitely see that. Um, I guess switching gears even though I'd love to ask you about parenting all day, but just to keep uh, a little flow to the interview uh, or, or conversation. So you have a website dedicated to luxury travel in Latin America. And um, I, I think uh, it's a little bit secret or people don't know it's you or something, but maybe you would love to hear about that to the extent that you're willing to diverge. Cause obviously, you know, we talk all about Latin America here in my Latin life. Yeah. It's, um, a situation where I, I use a pen name and it's not a very original pen name. It's Timothy Scott, my first two names. Um, and I, I simply do that to keep my Google profile clean because I've got lots of articles about 
budget travel. I have books out on budget travel and living abroad for less. So it would look kind of weird if I'm on one hand doing all that. And on the other hand, talking about, you know, hotels that cost $2,000 a night. So I basically kind of run that site, um, as Timothy Scott, and he's a man of mystery who has no social media profile. Um, but anyway, all the writers know I'm the same guy, everybody that works for me. And, um, but basically I launched it back in 2007 when I saw a huge hole in the market, there was nobody covering the Americas and there were all these new luxury hotels opening up all these new, um, high end tours starting. Mm -hmm. And it's a great part of the world for adventure travel. And so you can, you know, sort of have these exclusive experiences that a lot of high end travelers crave so they can have bragging rights that, you know, something their friends haven't done. And I saw all that and just saw that nobody was really covering it, um, in depth. And so I, I was, I had some writing assignments for uh, other publications where I was reviewing hotels in Argentina and Peru and some other countries. So I basically just took all my own research that I'd already done and launched the site with a few countries to start. And then I just kept adding and adding, and I started hiring freelancers who lived at these in these places and um, just kept building up the content over time. So I've got a really good Google domain ranking. Like it's, first of all, it's old. It's been up since 2007. And also there's still nobody covering that part of the world exclusively. I, I basically cover Mexico down through Antarctica. And um, there's plenty of high-end publications covering those countries now and then, but they're more focused on Europe or Asia or the whole world, basically, whereas I'm only concentrating on um, those Latin American countries. So I honestly can say for sure that this site has more in-depth reviews. It has more in-depth information. Um, it's more comprehensive. It's updated more often. So thankfully, Google most of the time will recognize that and mm -hmm. rank us fairly well. And I think I heard that it was your most profitable site. Yeah, it is just because there's a lot more money in budget in luxury travel than there is in budget travel. It's just... You know, I, I learned this from the beginning. Budget travelers are very fragmented. You know, they don't book cruises. They don't book the same hotel brand on a regular basis. You know, they don't do any of those things that advertisers are focused on. And so we're very hard to reach when we're budget travelers. You know, we just basically go for whatever has the best price and whatever is the best value. And we don't have any loyalty. <laughs> and so uh, we're not good advertising targets. Whereas the luxury audience, you know, if you can get people to spend 10 grand a pop on a tour, you know, you can, you could spend a lot of money advertising to get those people in. So we do a lot of direct deals. We have good display ads showing up. We do pretty well with affiliate things where people, you know, click on a link and book something. So it is the most profitable. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America. And Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. 
And do people ever tell you, or does it make you think that you should go up market across everything, maybe even sell the cheap stuff, sell the cheap websites and go luxury on everything? Yeah, I don't know. It's just my heart's not in it, you know, because <laughs> um, I think it is important to have passion for what you cover and for it to be a, a natural fit. And believe me, I like staying in those hotels with the nice bathrobes and the plunge pool and all that, but I would never spend money on them on my own dime because I just think it's not a great value for me because I'm not a millionaire. You know, if I were, then I would feel differently about it. So um, I have this still in my life, this schizophrenic travel situation where I'll be at some luxury palace for a few nights because I'm writing about it. And then we'll go stay at the Airbnb that's $50 a night you know, and get some work done uh -huh. <laughs> because the that's just more my lifestyle and my budget. And um, I like the, tro the slow travel uh, way of traveling much more than the um, stay three nights at the Rosewood and then go home, you know? So it's just, um, yeah, I, and I, I do like writing the books. And I think to write a book about luxury travel would be a, a lot different. And um, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't do as well either. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm kind of at this crossroads myself because uh, like you, I'm passionate about talking about living cheap. And I think that that's certainly one angle to bring people to Latin America. But maybe the other angle is is more the live like a king angle. And of course, it costs a little bit less, but... Um, more the live like a king angle than the than the like extend your runway angle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I think I just was thinking about this just now as you said that. Like, I think maybe luxury travelers aren't looking for advice as much as independent budget travelers are because they've got somebody else setting it all up for them. You know, uh, either sure. they have a travel agent or they have a full time assistant, or you know, they're not doing the hard stuff. They're just making the big decisions about. Where are we going to go and what's the itinerary going to look like? Show me some examples. Okay, I'll pick letter C. Let's go with that. <laughs> and then they're done. You know, like somebody else is taking care of all the logistics. Yeah, that's actually a good point. And then so how do you get at the luxury travelers if, um, if they're not doing the research themselves? Well, some of them are just because they think it's fun. You know, like they want to see what kind of fancy hotels are in that location and they want to, you know, look at all the best options for Cusco and decide which one is the best fit for them. So they will come on our site and like look at all the ho luxury hotel reviews and decide which one is ideal. Um, but then they'll hand it over to somebody else to do the bookings, you know, and, and maybe they want to go on a, um, a tour of the sacred Valley in Machu Picchu, but they're not sure, you know, how all that plays out. And so they'll do a little research just to figure it out. But then, um, you know, they're not, uh, they're not doing the, the dirty work of making all the bookings and working out the transportation. Cool. Cool. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot. Can I get a backlink? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, you know, I, I write about uh, Mexico and living abroad on all those good things. So, um, and yeah, of course, uh, we have tour stories and all that. So. Yeah, we'll we'll sort something out. Well, yeah. <laughs> I just want to do all the recording to pressure you, but no. Yeah, uh, we could do a, a three-way because uh, I have multiple sites. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Hey, I mean, uh, our, our website's been around since 2013, 2014. It's not a bad one either to have. Wow, congratulations. 10-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, cool. I mean, Tim, this is really fun uh, to do a, an episode with you. I, I definitely wanted to try to ask you a little bit of things that you haven't been asked before. Um, so that's why I didn't ask you about every detail of living in Guanajuato, because I know you've gotten into it in the past. So, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, medical stuff. We talked about schooling. We talked about luxury travel. Um, really fun. Really cool to to hear your voice uh, after. Yeah, and after if any of your days. listeners are coming through, um, you know, feel free to hit me up. I, I I'm away a lot, but when I'm here in Guanajuato, I like meeting up with travelers who are coming through, and we can have a beer together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you uh, you follow us on Twitter, right? You enjoy uh, the My Latin Life Twitter. Yeah, you have some good tweets on there, and I like the uh, the mindset shift kind of things. You know, just convincing people that it's not a scary world out there, and oh, by the way, you can spend half as much as you're spending now for a, a more interesting life. Yeah, I uh, I think your book title is one of the best book titles ever, and I always got confused. I don't know if you've heard this before, but so your book is a better life for half the price, and then there's another book called Your Money or Your Life, which you might be familiar with. Yeah, I read that a long time ago, the, the very first edition. Um, but that's more about being frugal, you know, like you don't need as much stuff as you think you need, but it's not about, they don't really talk much about living abroad, I don't think, if at all. Um, they talk about like sharing a house with two other couples, maybe, <laughs> things like that. Oh, really? Okay. We'll scrap that. <laughs> I thought it was more about like get you know, get a nest egg and then live off the interest, you know, the financial independence, retire early type stuff. Yeah, that book was kind of before all that, I think. But they do talk about that some, but they're talking more about um, kind of resisting the um, consumerism and the keeping up with the Joneses kind of stuff. And, right. you know, just trying to find meaning in life instead of finding it through your stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, your book title... It's almost impossible to deny. Like if anyone took a self-aware glance, they could be like, it's pretty hard to deny. Like, yes, I could obviously go somewhere else and live a better life for half the price. Yeah. And I think people think it's impossible to live in Europe, for example, on a reasonable price because they've heard it's super expensive there. And it is if you go to Paris or London or somewhere like that, but there's, you know, hundreds of reasonable places to live in Europe. And and the quality of life is so much better. Like it's so much more walkable and, you know, healthcare is better. And, you know, they're just, their cities are built for people and not cars. And, you know, so that alone can just make such a difference in your life. Yeah. Do you have a car in Mexico? I don't. And uh, I don't need one here. Actually, we rent one every once in a while to take a road trip. But um this city is kind of interesting. They built these tunnels through the mountains to kind of divert the traffic. And mm -hmm. so the whole pedestrian center only has two streets on it with cars and all the rest is pedestrian only. And then these, they call them callejones, these um, alleyways Alice. that go up the hills, you know, mm -hmm. they're all, they're all steps <laughs> basically. So we live on one, it's like 42 steps to our house, which is, keeps you in shape, you know, but, um, but yeah, we walk everywhere. And then if we do need a taxi, it's, three or four dollars the equivalent of nice and your neighbors got dogs on the roof and all that 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's the, that's one <laughs> downside of Mexico. I have a post about the pros of pros and cons of living in Mexico, and one of them one of them is you must get used to noise. It is always noisy unless you're like out in the countryside or maybe sitting on an empty beach. You know, they just have a different tolerance for noise <laughs> than we do in the in our culture, and so you got to get used to dogs on the roof that are basically a lame security system and music played at all hours at full volume. And sometimes you walk down the beach and hear three different stereos playing at one time and nobody mm -hmm. thinks anything of it. It's so funny. So if people wanted to uh, read more of your writing specifically about Mexico and Latin America, which, which of the sites would that be? Well, my cheapest destinations blog is the best if you're uh, on a budget or you're an independent traveler on your own. And um, you can just search Mexico, search Guanajuato. Everything's tagged and categorized. Um, if you're at the other end of the scale and you are a luxury traveler, then go to Luxury Latin America. And we've got uh, reviews, lots of tour stories. And there is a blog there where um, the fun part we didn't talk about on that blog is I really ramped this up during the pandemic. But I review um, spirits on there like rum and tequila and mezcal and other things that oh, are nice. produced in latin america and so um uh, i get to have fun with that on the blog and it allows me to write off booze purchases on my taxes which is a dream <laughs> shit i need uh i need something like that so what's your go-to uh tequila or mezcal right now well the one i probably buy the most is cazadoras because i think it's a great value it's made in the highlands of jalisco so it's a little more uh like herbal and floral and um, doesn't put hair on your chest maybe. Um, but like if I'm somewhere like an all-inclusive resort and I can drink whatever's on the shelf, then I, I drink Don Julio or um, uh, the really good one is the 1942 one that's in a tall bottle. But um, one quick thing to know is Jose Cuervo Gold is a terrible tequila. It's just, it's, you oh, know, yeah. their best known brand, but it's Terrible. awful. But Jose Cuervo puts out so much great stuff. So if you see 1800, that's really good. Centenario is good. You know, a lot of the big brands that Mexicans buy are actually pretty good because they're all 100% agave. And sometimes you can find ones that are even the equivalent of like 14, 15 bucks that are quite good. As long as they say 100% agave on the label, 100% blue agave, then it's going to be at least decent. Yeah, uh, that, that surprised me too, that uh, Mexicans don't even drink Cuervo. It's like a crappy one. No, they they uh, put their nose up at, them, at it and <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> uh, one last question. Um, if you had to live in any other city in Mexico that was not Guanajuato, nor anything in the state of Guanajuato, where would you live? You know, I think about this a lot. And there's a lot of them that I would be comfortable living in. Um, I've heard Jalapa's nice, but I've never been there. Um, I could live in Puebla for sure. They they have the biggest colonial center in Mexico, actually, but it is a big city. Um, I think Carretero is quite nice, although it's it's kind of dustier there because they have a desert nearby that the winds are blowing through sometimes. Um, I like Merida in the winter, but I would never live there in the hot months. And on the flip side of that, I like San Cristobal de las Casas and Chiapas a lot, but it gets quite cold there in the wintertime. And there's also not a really good airport connection there. And that's important to me. I want to be in a place with, you know, good air connections. Um, and I like be being at the beach, but I don't really want to live in any of the beach towns. I like going there on vacation. 
So would you say Puebla or give me like yeah, a quick, give me a quick one? Yeah, probably Puebla or Puebla or Querétaro. Yeah, I like this elevation. I like this you know year round nice temperature thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean who doesn't? I mean Guanajuato definitely is amazing weather. Very cool. All right. Well, I think we put uh, Guanajuato as well as Puebla on people's radar a little bit more. Um, Tim, you know, thank you so much for doing this podcast episode. Really great to connect. Um, use this time to direct the audience's attention one more time to your sites and wherever wherever you want to send them. Well, if you could just remember my name, that's an easy one. TimLeffel.com links out to everything like my freelance articles, my websites, my books, and all of that. So just go to timluffle.com and that'll connect you wherever you want to go. Sweet. All my socials are on there as well. Leffle backwards, still Leffle. Yeah, palindrome. Palindrome, <laughs> palindrome. Yeah, I was thinking of the word. Cool. Well, this has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Again, my guest today, Tim Leffle. Thanks everyone for listening.